Edward Miskey, welcome to the Bookaholic Podcast. Thank you, Deirdre. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's lovely to be here in more ways than one because you're the sole survivor of a rare cancer for the last 10 years. Yay, hooray. Yay. Thank goodness. <laughs> So, you know, uh, yeah, it's definitely good to be here. And, and you have a lot, probably a lot more to say about being here than a whole lot of other people. And we're going to dive into your story uh, because you've written a memoir that's like cancer slash musical theater slash those words should never go together, but they do. <laughs> but they do in the title of your book. And tell us the title of your book. Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. Yes, 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 yes. And so you you read that and you're like, well, wow, how do I take that? Because <laughs> again, <laughs> cancer and musical theater rarely go together. But, you know, I think once we complete this interview, people will see what exactly you mean by that. And I think this is definitely going to be a great book for anyone who is going through especially cancer, but very trying times as well. So, and I know you and I, you know, we have had some great times on our getting to know you call uh, some fun times, but we are talking about cancer and we want to start from that and uh, on a serious note an informative note, and then we'll get to the other aspects of the creativity of this book and its concept. So so before you had cancer, describe your life bef before you received this diagnosis. Um, I was a star, baby. <laughs> um, no, I mean, not to that degree, but I, I was very fortunate. I was able to perform in musicals all over the country. Um, I had some momentum going in my career. I was young. I was hot. I had all the possibilities going. Um, at, the, at the time, right before I was diagnosed, I was doing Hairspray in Nevada, um, oh. you know, as Corny Collins, made famous by James Marsden in the musical yeah. uh, movie adaptation recently. And it was it was fun. We were having a good time. And, you know, we we're in the middle of the desert with like casinos and we were gambling and drinking and just living, living that life. Right. Yeah, you, were, you were throwing it up. <laughs> right. Like any money we got went right back into the slot machines. <laughs> wow. 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 It was what fun. It was fun. Done? Yeah, I was exactly. Young. I was 24 and we were just like soaking up the sun and like going up to like Tahoe on the days off. And, you know, I was living my best life. And that's that's kind of one of the fortunate things that you get to do as an actor, like performing around the country. Like, it's, right. it's kind of funny. You, everyone's like, oh, I'm going to move to New York to do theater and be an actor. And then you end up working everywhere but new york <laughs> for the most part and um that's not it's not a bad thing it's just you get to kind of like live this kind of vagabond lifestyle where you're yeah. going from town to town to town doing different shows and various like of various sizes and budgets and whatnot yes. and you know the fun part about it is that you get to be a tourist in every town that you're in yeah. So that's kind of what we were doing. That was my life before of, of you know, just being a tourist wherever I went and making friends and kind of being silly and, you know, singing, singing for my supper. <laughs> yeah, well, it was the lifestyle of a young person, you know, a young person that was fortunate enough to have such a position. And uh, hey, you like you said, you were just living your life, living your best life, definitely. And so now you're you're living this great life and then what happens? Do you feel some type of pain or unease or 
Yeah, so I I was between shows actually. I done I just finished doing hairspray in Ohio and then I was mm-hmm. about to start doing hairspray in Reno and I was laying out in my parents' backyard, you know, soaking up the sun because, mm-hmm. you know, 24 without a care in the world of of skin anything. Well, and uh I don't even think I was using sunscreen. <laughs> probably not. Yeah, probably not. You know how it is. And mm-hmm. uh like I, f- I went to shower afterwards and I felt this little lump under my arm and that was kind of the mm. beginning of it. Like not knowing what it was, it was small. It just felt like an interruption in like my skin. Mm. And, you know, I asked my mom about it and I asked my best friend's mom about it. Cause she's also both, both work in, in medicine and huh. they just were like, well, I mean, you know, swollen lymph nodes can mean a bunch of things, you know, it, like it's probably something small and no big deal that doesn't feel too bad. So just wait and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And it ended up just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I, I was misdiagnosed by my GP in New York as having cat scratch fever, which isn't real. And uh, yeah, I know they put me on antibiotics and I went on my merry way to Nevada. And while I was there, it, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until by the time i by the time i left it was a five-month contract by the time i left at the end of november it was like the size of a grapefruit under my arm and like my skin was all stretched out and like my shoulder was like displaced back to make room for it and like they had to take my costume out because it got so big it was terrible so by the time by the time i got back to new york it was very apparent that something needed to happen yes and now let me make this statement a lot of times we may have things going on with us And here you are in musical theater. So I'm thinking there's a lot of movement there. There's singing, there's dancing, you know, there's, you know, all of these things. And you're squelching your life down with this thing under your arm. And it's there. It's obtrusive. But you're living with it. And, you know, I'm just saying people stop making excuses for stuff that's just not right. You know, it's not right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of one of the things that I look back now and, and the, the, the chronology of everything is like, it is what it is. I can't change it. But like really what should have happened is I should have pushed harder for a diagnosis, but because I had this show coming up and I had this career momentum, I didn't want to disappear because I knew that whatever it was like would have taken something away from me time being the most important. So I just kind of let it go. And, and if we would have waited any longer, I was at stage one B which is like a little hair hair away from stage two, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been a very different conversation. And I, I didn't actually didn't find out until later. And I don't think they officially said this, but um, when we got further along in treatment and whatnot, they had found places that they suspected it had also been growing uh, ah! that, that we were not aware of. Like we, we knew that it had kind of spread up to under my clavicle. It was under my arm, and then it was under my clavicle. And then later we found out that there might have been some on my spleen. Because oh my, my spleen had shrunk. So like, oh my god! And this was all like, surprise, like, maybe that happened. So we don't yeah. really know if it was officially stage two or not. It was never, like, written down as such. But there was definitely, like, a spreading of that happening that we were unaware of. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so what is this? I'm sure it's a long, horrible name, but what is this rare cancer called? Get ready. <laughs> oh my gosh. I knew it was going to be long and terrible. Yeah, it's called rare enlarged B cell, rare enlarged diffused B cell, uh, Burkitt's like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So it was part of that whole non-Hodgkin's, which yes. that's confusing to people when it says non 
Americans, people are like, well, what? Is that not serious or whatever? It's definitely well, serious. Well, so the, the difference, to my understanding, the difference of the two is that Hodgkin's tends to be more of a chronic thing that you have to receive treatment for periodically for the rest of your life. Um, I'm okay. not sure if there are cases where that is not the case. That is, I believe that is how that was explained to me. Whereas okay. lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, we have more information on and we have more studies on and there's more treatment for it and it's easier to treat. What made this weird is that it was a diffused B cell, which I don't know what that means. And then uh -huh. there was the Burkitt's-like component, which Burkitt's is a very serious, very aggressive kind of cancer separate of non-Hodgkin's that is found in children under the age of like 10 in certain uh -huh. parts of Africa. And oh, there wow. are even fewer cases of that reported throughout the world. And so the fact that me as a 25-year-old white man in America right. having anything right. to do with that was very strange. Yeah. Um, so it was just like this amalgamation of like, why is this here? Um, right. But, you know, we like, you know, like you said before, like cancer is a very serious subject and it was a very traumatic period of time in my life. But we and and something that I, I try to hit the point home as much as I can is that during this experience, we made fun. Right. We, we created memories so that I can look right. back now and be like, that was so great. I'm so glad. Right. We did that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. And just one more quick thing. Um, and this just came upon you. This is not hereditary. This is not, this just, this strangely came upon you. Like you said, it was a, just, just, I, I just unexplainable why you even got it. Yeah. I mean, there's barely any real like chronic traces of cancer in our family that we know of at least. I mean, there have been people in our family who have had types of cancer mm -hmm. um, that, and they're all, but they're all different kinds. So there's no through line of like, oh, you know, this side of the family has breast cancer history. We don't right. have, that. we don't have that. So it was just yeah. a very weird, like, okay, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> right, right, right. So here we have to say to ourselves, you've got to accept something um, that's rare and you can't, you don't have time or the room to say why me, which I'm sure that crossed your mind, but you don't really have that kind of time. So we're going to pause right here and go over to, as you were going through your treatments and doctor's appointments and all of this, um, I'm assuming you had support but then you find out a lot of different things about people. And I will make this statement. Somebody once told me, you never know who you're really married to until you get a divorce. And I was like, oh, wow, because, you know, people start to, they, they flip out. They act crazy. Then there's always the one I found out uh, and that a lot of brides or brides-to-be know what I'm talking about is that, uh, you know, you find out who your true friends are when you have a wedding, you know, and the girl that you have always been friends with and she's, you know, you want her in her, your wedding, it's, she's the one that's going to disappoint you. So, you know, we, we all have found out or there's different ways that we really find out about people, who your real friends are, who supports you, who are fair weather friends versus loyal friends. And tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with this kind of uh, uh, train of thought. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. And I love the idea of like, you don't know who you're married to until you get a divorce. Like what a great, 
because it's true i mean like once once the once the pretense goes away then like everyone becomes this like kind of survival mode like feral animal that's like this is what's happening um you know you take away the stability of it all and and like you know it's kind of like um uh i think it's a similar adage where you 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 know who you you know who the kind of person that you are when you are faced with an emergency or something like that um you know and it's kind of all the same idea as as like when there's a giant upset in your life the people who are there for you are there for you and you know one of the one of the people who i considered to be one of my closest friends at the time like i told him i had cancer and that was the last time i saw them um oh my gosh save of one other time where they tried to be like you you're gonna have to talk to me eventually and i just flat looked at them and said no i'm not unreal because so you- it's just and and like that that and i had a, a boyfriend break up with me during this period of time as well and like yes. it took me a really long time to kind of come to peace with that because it's like oh this guy's like a total asshole and like you know and and you right. go you go down that line of thinking right, um right. and rightfully so that's a, a, a bad thing to happen um right. and it hurts and it doesn't feel good it makes you question a lot about yourself especially during a, a very rocky period of time that is also unstable yeah. um but looking back you know like i see those people now and it's just like they're first of all they didn't fit in my life to begin with right. and secondly they weren't equipped to be in my life right and those are the people who the people who were equipped to be in my life are the ones who stuck around and are still in my life and have always been my friends and i think one of the best things i've said this before and it's kind of quasi controversial where cancer is actually the best thing that ever happened to me for a multitude of reasons and this is one of them where i know who my friends are and i can say that i can say that definitively even as it it is in the rear view of my life i still definitively have the same passengers in my car yes yes i love that well you know um and i just spoke to my husband and uh the other day about this uh similar thing but not with a disease and that you do find out um just in general who your friends are and there's friends. And if I could told, could have told my younger self this, and I'm trying to tell younger people as much information as I possibly can, that, um, you know, you're going to have friends for a season. You don't know who that is right now, but there's just going to be some people that are friends and you're going to love them, like them. Y'all going to have a great time, but they're going to only be in your life for a season. And you have to be good with that. You know, and uh, I think that's one of the things that people fail to tell young people. So I'm trying to tell them the the, <laughs> the most information to prepare them as possible because uh, that's what happens. And, uh, you know, anybody that doesn't have the sympathy enough, if you tell them that you have cancer, to not even want to check on you. I mean, you know, that goes to show you who they are. That's, you know, mm-hmm. definitely. that's not gonna be willing to check up on you and and hope that you get better well and i think i think one thing that a lot of people are um a lot of people that don't i think don't see it this way um i grew up playing sports i by no means am like a sports person i don't watch them now but like as a kid and as a teenager i was an athlete and i think one of the things that i got out of that and doing shows and musicals at the same time was the um embodiment and the understanding of teamwork and how it works to not be a singularity and 
how life is really just a team sport. We're all in it together and we all need to help each other to get to the end goal. And that's not that like, that's not every human that you meet, but you get to select your team players and you get to select the teams that you're on. And and some people are quarterbacks and some people are, are tackles and some people are coaches. And like, that's just the dynamics. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm not a sports person, but having had that experience as a teenager and understanding the dynamic of how people as a group work to right. build, to help you build your life while also building theirs. It's the same right. with the show. You have someone who's the lead, you have someone who's the supporting, you have some people who are in the ensemble, and then right. you have the tons of stage crew and stage management and the writers and producers and this huge team to make right. this one thing happen. And the one thing that's happening is your life. And there are little microcosms of other things that are happening within life. But, you know, building your team and building the team that you want to be on mm-hmm. is so important. And like you said, like mm-hmm. people are around for a season. Well, sports are in seasons. Right. And, and so it's kind of like, you know, you get to pick who your ride or dies are. Right. And and then the rest of them, like, it's not to say that they're not good people or they're not good friends, but like, mm-hmm. you know, they wax and wane a little bit more than your like than your core people. That's and, exactly like, right. And it really just is. I look at it as either a team sport or like building life as a musical. Build build a musical together. Yes, 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 yes. Well, now let's move on to here's another phrase that doesn't go together typically, but sex, drugs, and cancer. <laughs> so. How do these work? How do these three things work together? How do they not work is the better question. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, yeah. let's hear it. So, I mean, um, like, uh, you know, the first thing you hear when you're, like, cancer patient is not sex, drugs, or really anything else. And the point I was trying to drive home with this, with this particular narrative in the book, is that, like, you're still a person. You know, like, you still want to be told that you're beautiful or that you're desirable and like whether you're like I'm not necessarily talking about like sex drive and desires per se although that does play into it but it's more so the idea that like you know I was a very good looking 23 year old and I didn't realize it at the time looking back well thank you thank you I'll send you a picture otherwise and and you'll see the the difference (laughs) and you'll be like oh wow you've fallen down (laughs) right on your face um, but like, you know, and you, of course, when you're that age, you don't think so. And you think everything is awkward and terrible and you look like a dinosaur and, and, you know, there's all kinds of mental body dysmorphia, dysmorphia things that play into that, which I also talk about in the book. Um, that's the other chronic illnesses part, but, um, you know, you, you go from being a, a person, however you look, however you feel about yourself, et cetera, to being this thing that kind of looks like it crawled out of a lagoon somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I very much felt that way, but I still had this want to be like, told that I was pretty or told that I was desirable or like have someone cat call me on the street as controversial as that is. I still like during that period of time, like wished that some construction worker would have been like, Hey baby. Yes. You yes, know, cause like yes. I just felt like, God, I would have given anything for that. And there's a scenario that I give in the book and I will try to keep this as family friendly as possible. Yeah. But, um, but like, there's a scenario in the book where I go for my radiation appointment Mm-hmm. I went I went every day, five days a week for a month. Mm. And in the first like week or two that I was there, I was talking to the radio techs and uh, radiology techs. And they were mm-hmm. like, 
Yeah. So like before this happened, like, what did you do? And I was like, oh, I was an actor and whatever. And I pulled out my cell phone and I showed them my old headshot from like right before I started. And both of them were like, that's you. And I just was like, (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh. And so, you know, that, that really, really, really messed me up. And, and so I, I went, I got dressed after the appointment. I went home and I just like, re-downloaded all of the the dating apps that were available and i just started like inviting guys over like in in succession of each other because like and like any takers any at all because i just felt so terrible about myself yeah you wanted you want an instant support you wanted uh yeah it's the gratification Mm -hmm. the validation and being told like you know, you, you're still desirable to somebody. Mm-hmm. And like, was that a healthy thing to do? Probably not. Was that like a safe thing to do considering my like medical circumstances? Definitely yeah. not. <laughs> yeah. Correct. You know, to like have these like mediocre strangers crawling all over me, like for my own personal validation, you know, it, it, yeah. it wasn't the best and it was a really low point. Um, but it was the first time that I, re- it really hit me that things had really gone awry yes Um, and that was shortly after i was told that my doctor my doctor told me like we don't know what's going on like we we're having a really hard time with this and we don't really know what the outcome is going to be and it's not looking good and so it was kind of this compounding of things that kind of like i used sex as a personal validation for myself to feel better um now the drugs component i mean quasi self-explanatory because you're being pumped full of them on the daily yeah right (laughs) but i mean like you know up until that point i had never tried like pot or marijuana in any form at all and there's a there's a really great story in the book where i have my friends over come over to shave my head for fun and we have like drinks and people are bringing food and like we just had like this potluck dinner thing in my old apartment and it was really really fun and a friend of mine brought these homemade pot brownies and i'd never had them before and like she told me that she was bringing them i was like no don't like meds whatever but she did anyway because she's a good friend and uh he didn't listen to me (laughs) and uh because i had never had them i didn't really know what the situation was so i had one and then i had a second one and then i had a third one plus alcohol and by the time everyone left i went to bed and i could not walk i had to go i woke up because i had to go to the bathroom i could not walk i had to like army crawl to the toilet it was really tragic (laughs) it's one of those things where like in the moment it was like oh no and now looking back i can laugh at it and it's fine (laughs) now now i can see where you can laugh at that that is that is very funny and and it's been more than one person that's gotten tripped up from marijuana brownies it's not just they'll get you man and this, and this was before i mean this we're talking this is 2011 12 yeah and before, this is before legal, legal. well the like the legalities of it but also like before people were like oh like 10 milligrams and like this this many whatever's and like people know dosages now back then it was like let's throw some buds and some butter and boil it and see what happens like best of luck to you <laughs> trial and error <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, have fun. Oh Don't know what's God. in it really, but here's the brownies. <laughs> well, now, Edward, now you just mentioned that, you know, you said that the doctors were taking a look at you and it wasn't looking good. So how do we go from wasn't looking good to being the sole survivor of this rare cancer? What a great way to phrase that. I've never really thought about it that way. Um, 
it was a weird turn of events, right? So like mm-hmm. they, I knew that they knew that things weren't going well because I asked them to be straight with me. Yes. And, and my doctor was, and that's what she told me. And mm-hmm. so when it got to the point where they were trying to stick to an, a protocol, it was right after radiation and my radiation worked. You know, like I had like all of all of the chemos that I had up up until then would shrink the tumor down and then it would grow back and it would shrink down and grow back. And that happened every time I had chemo and I was getting spinal taps full of chemo that they'd like shoves like chemo into my spinal column. And it was it was wild. And, uh, you know, so when when we got to that point where, um, you know, there was a turnaround when I started to feel better. You know, radiation was really localized. It wasn't full body. So like, like my hair grew back and I started to eat better. And, you know, like there were, there were a lot of really great things that happened because of radiation. And, and like, you'll, I'm, I'm sure some people listening might've heard the term chemo brain where like, you're just like living in a fog, like you're functioning and your motor skills are there and you're articulate, but like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Your cognitive right. still skills kind of go away a little bit and you're just yes. a less of a person. Yeah. And, um, you know, during radiation that started to clear up. And so I started to think more clearly. And when they were telling me all these things that they wanted to do with a stem cell transplant, they wanted me to have um, an analogous stem cell transplant, which is when someone else is your donor. Okay. And, and I like didn't really want to do it the way that they described it to me. I was like, nah, that doesn't sound like something I want to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I kind of put my foot down and was like, I don't want to do this. And they're like, well, you have to. I was like, I don't. Right. You know, I was right. like, I'm I'm 24. Right. Or it was 25, I guess, at that point. I was like, I'm 25. I was in the best shape of my life when I got in here. There's no reason why I can't be my own donor. Right. And they, gotcha. were, and they were so resistant to that. But I was like, no, this is what we're doing. I was like, mm. I like you can look for another match if you want to, but I don't want to do that. And I'm t- I'm verbalizing that to you now. Right. And right. so we tried collecting stem cells from me and it wasn't successful. We only got a fraction of what we needed. And I and the tumor was still shrinking even after we stopped radiation. And so I was just like, I don't see the need for this. Like, I'm not a doctor, right. whatever. But like it felt like they were pushing me and pushing me and pushing me to this thing without it just something about it felt off. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. so I, I got to a point where they were so forceful about it that it felt like they needed it more than I needed it. And it just yeah. was like, it was like this one appointment where I was like, hang on a minute. Like, hello, I'm the patient. This is about me, not about right. you sure. and what the hospital wants. Right. And so like, I looked into it a little bit and I had a conversation with my mom and I was like, I don't think I want to be in this hospital anymore. I was like, I want to go get a second opinion, which we were we were told not to do. We what? Gonna... Listen, honey, like this was a whole thing. Um... This hot and the reason I don't name this hospital in my book or in any interviews I do is because I don't need them to come after me and sue me. But they like because no. I know someone on their legal team and they will and they'll win. Um no. so like <laughs> He knows I'm going around running my mouth, but like, Um, so like they just, um, you know, they, they didn't, I think they viewed me as a dead person. And so they were experimenting to see what they could do because it was a rare cancer. And, And when I said something about going for a second opinion at Sloan Kettering specifically, they were like, Oh, you don't want to go there. They're like, they're, they're a oiled machine. They'll treat you like a number. 
there's like there's the like the care the 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 quality of care is broken down because of that and i was like oh okay and i just went with it and then once i got to the point where i had this chemo brain clarity whatever Mm -hmm. i was like no i want to go to sloan kettering give me their number refer me and when i got when i got to sloan kettering first of all it's a circus to get any of your file from anything they charge you for photocopies and i was like I was like, cool. So that's my body in there. You're going to give it to me now. <laughs> yeah, really. Come on um, now. And you have to get your slides and all the other things. So by the time all of that happened and I went to Sloan Kettering and sat down with my, my future doctor, she mm. literally took the slide out and like held it up to the light and was like, that's not the kind of cancer you have. Like without, and without anything. And I just sat there like with my jaw open, like what? She's like, the protocol is pretty much the same, but they misdiagnosed you. And I was like, Okay. And then my favorite part of this is when she asked me who my doctor was, I told her and she was like, shame on her. I trained her. She should know better. And I was like, bitch, I am staying with you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It was wild. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And so when she gave me the rundown, she was like, yeah, you can totally be your own donor for a stem cell transplant, but you have to do it. And I was like, what if I don't want to do it? She's like, well, you won't live past 30. And I was so like, I was like, okay, well. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty, and let's get that on the books. <laughs> I'm available today. <laughs> exactly. Wow. My yeah. gosh. She was great. Yeah. I, I was afraid of her the whole time. I loved her, and I thought she was fabulous, but I was terrified of her. Yeah. yeah and well. when I got to the five-year mark, and I didn't know this was true, because I had to go see her, I think, once or twice a year for the first five years. And right. once you hit five years without a reoccurrence, you don't have to see your oncologist anymore. Okay. And I didn't I didn't know that. And I didn't know that that was the appointment I was walking into. Oh. And so when I got there, she was like, you're five years. And I was like, yeah, weird, right? And she handed me this little pin that was like a congratulations pin that she pinned on oh. me. And she's like, this is your last appointment with me. And I was like, what? Oh what are you talking about? Last appointment. And I cried in the room. I was just like, I can so, see, I, can I was see so that. sad. Like she saved my life. First of all. Yes. <laughs> yes. Cause I was like, Oh wow. <laughs> you know? So yeah. yeah it, oh, I just sat there and like cried and just looked at her and I was like, are you serious? And I got so emotional. It caught me off guard. Cause I was like, why are you crying? This is a good thing. <laughs> yes. But still, but still. Yeah. I, oh wow. Wow. Edward. I mean, and to say this as horrible as cancer is, as as terrible as your diagnose, you know, your diagnosis was and prognosis at one point was. I mean, this is an incredible story. It's an incredible, wonderful, beautiful story. You know, it was weird to live through. And like a, another point that I try to drive home is stand up for yourself. Like there's, it's so yes. hard to do. It's so hard to do. And I am not saying that it's easy by any stretch. Like it took me four, four rounds of failed chemo radiation, and then some like pushing towards a thing I didn't want to do for me to actually say, no, I don't want to do that. Right. And I had to be, I do really forceful with them because they kept coming back with case studies and this, that, and the next thing. And for whatever reason, my brain and my body were just like, don't do it. And no, I was just going to say, yeah. And I was just going to say like, beyond that, like it, it just took an appointment where I was like, I just had to look her dead in the face and say, I'm not doing this. Right. And I want a second opinion. May I please have my file. 
Right. And I really just did have to like dig my heels in because otherwise they, again, like I think they just saw me as like a dead person that they could like toy around with and and run experiments on, which is what yes. they were doing. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what they were doing, and probably hoping to write some type of award winning uh, medical journal article. That part. Uh, Based on you, <laughs> you know, you just don't ever know. So, you know, um, that's one of the takeaways I say the, the greatest, one of the greatest takeaways from your story is that you have to fight for your rights. And a lot of people, so many people are afraid of the doctor, you know, because the doctor is supposed to be so smart and they don't want to offend <laughs> the doctor. And um, I think I think doctor in the American society has taken on kind of like what the priest took on in Catholic society. And it's just like, well, you know, if the priest said or whatever the doctor said, you know, you were very, very deathly ill, but you stood up for your rights. And so that is definitely one of the things that that people should get from this interview. The second thing is that somewhere in there, because of your support and probably because of who you are, you might've, you felt bad. Uh, you, you needed validation uh, at different points, but there, there has to be a positivity there. There has to be a drive there. There's still a drive to live, to win, to succeed, and that's what you had in you. You had to have had that in you to even be able to fight for your medical rights, you know, so. Yeah, well, and, and one thing I, I always kind of jokingly say is, you know, what do you call a med student that's about to graduate that has all Ds? <laughs> a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Still graduated. Still graduated. Still a doctor. <laughs> Got straight D's, but still a doctor. <laughs> you know, and and we have to remember that not all doctors are created equal. There is no yeah. like across the board standard. I mean, there's a standard, but like right. there's variation on that standard. And so I'm not saying don't trust your doctor. What I'm saying is if it doesn't feel right, get a second opinion. Seek right. out secondary opinions because like that one doctor is one of however many nearby. And this is also a whole different problem with the american medical system and how like there's out of network and insurance and blah 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 yes but like you know again like go, like things i try to drive the point home to is go to a specialist that was my biggest mistake i went to a big conglomerate hospital that had a cancer wing Mm -hmm. instead of a cancer hospital where the entire multi-billion dollar structure mm -hmm. only does cancer all day, every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, okay. you know, again, in the, in the not all doctors are created equal, getting, going to the top first will always save you a headache. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it, it, especially with something like cancer, like don't screw around. Right. Like that, right. that's, right. It's it's just not something to be like tiptoed with. And and right. to your point of like wanting to live and wanting to do the things like you have to fight. It's like the idea of like sitting around manifesting that you want to have a million dollars. Well, it's not just gonna fall out of the sky. You have to like go do something to get it, you know? Correct. And so right. like 
in in a traumatic experience like this it's like oh my god i just want to live i just want to like get through this it's like okay well these are the things that you have to do to do, to make that happen yes you know laying around all day staring at staring at the ceiling feeling sorry for yourself is not it is and, not it and there's room for that i certainly did it i'm i'm yes. not immune to having done that and drank what? my drank my way through chemo because of it okay. and the to brownies and the brownies yep they lasted a while <laughs> 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 um <laughs> but you know like you have to be active in your you have to participate in your own life and i think that's yes. true in general but especially in a circumstance like this yes most definitely yeah oh yeah you have to participate in your own life because you know just so many people do not they're just they're just here and they're just kind of gliding through you know yep. they go to work they come home and that's about it and um and they're not really participating so all of that and, and yeah. above is true. And now, there's, no, you... there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, like no. there, there's certainly a place to like glide through life. If you're comfortable and happy, great. Right. But I, I just get so frustrated when I see people who are just like, who have all this beautiful, gorgeous potential and they don't want anything like want something. What do you want? Like this right. cannot be it. <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 100%. Well, now, how did you um, know that you wanted to write a book? I didn't. I knew that I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what it was. And so um, there's <laughs> for yeah. the purposes of remaining family friendly, um, okay. I was back on the dating apps again <laughs> uh, several years after I had been cancer free. And I, I happened to meet this very handsome man who was coming to my apartment from where the neighborhood, like the block where my hospital was. Oh, okay. And I was like, huh, interesting. Hmm. And so he came over and we got to know each other. Yes. And, and then after we were done getting to know each other, we, I kind of called him on it and I was like, so what were you doing over at Sloan Kettering? And he like kind of freaked out. And I was like, hey, 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 hey. Like, I, same. Like, I was the patient there. I still am, you know. Yeah. So we had a talk about it. And he kind of opened yeah. up to me about how, you know, now that he was cancer-free, he cool. was irritated by everything. And he didn't know how to maneuver. And, like, work felt awful. And, like, there were just so many shifts that were like, what in the world uh -huh. is my life? And what uh -huh. what does it all mean? What am I doing here? And, like, uh. uh -huh. And... I was like, I have felt that way for the last three years and no one oh told gosh. me that that was normal. Oh. And so we had this really long chat about it. We stayed in touch and I had contacted a couple of my other friends who had had smaller versions of cancer, but cancer nonetheless, oh. and asked them similar questions. I was like, hey, when you were told that you were cancer-free, how did you feel? And we had this really long, each, each of us had this really long chat about how like, feel i don't know nothing like what do i do um it was this co conversation of being lost uh -huh. um and this kind of like existential identity crisis <laughs> wow and yeah. uh and that's exactly how i'd been living the the prior three years of my life and so at that point i was like i have to write this is what this is i was like this is what i want to do i want to write a book about this and i want to talk about how going through the cancer experience is insane and then living through it and coming out on the other side of it is almost more insane. And wow. so 
Yeah. And so to your point that you were making about how musical theater and cancer don't necessarily belong together, mm-hmm. that's where they belong together because musical theater is so heightened and insane and everything is like on a bigger, louder, in your face kind of scale. And everything that happens to you during cancer is the same because yeah. it's all it's all out of this world. Like I'm getting chemotherapy injected into my spine. What? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like you're going to pump me full of drugs until I have no immune system left. And then you're going to pump me full of my own fluids to bring my immune system back. And maybe it'll work. Like, what is that? Yes, yes, yes. And so the choice to use musical theater as a frame for the actual process of, um, being a patient and then also surviving when you're just kind of like in this desert of like, well, I mean, who am I right now? Because yeah. I don't know. And it's been yeah. taken all away and I have to figure this out again. Oh, and so God. that's why I decided to use it because I thought it was such a great kind of window into this heightened reality that you experience as a patient and survivor that doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily exist in the regular kind of like hyperbole that we speak in on a regular day-to-day basis in the English language. Like musical theater is a totally separate language right, right. that is much more colorful and and contrasty and and saturated in color and and add something to an experience like cancer or anything that just makes it so much more like this is crazy (laughs) right exactly exactly but you know i am so glad that you told us myself and the listeners about you know when you hear about somebody's cancer free you're like yay hooray and we're clapping and we're turning cartwheels and I did not realize that cancer patients or anybody that survives anything such as that um, has has that thought, that feeling. I, I never yeah. realized. That. Well, and I'm glad I'm glad you said it in that exact way because a lot of times when I have these interviews or I, I go to talks and whatnot, I have to I have to say that where it's like you're told you're cancer free and all of a sudden everyone's like woohoo you get to live and then they yeah. all disperse and you're like. Right, but what do I do now? <laughs> right, exactly. Because your life is profoundly changed. It changed. is profoundly changed. It's and and, so... and not to not to like negate what those who like go off and serve serve in the military and serve country and and whatever um, right. go go through. But it is seeing combat in a way, in the sense that you are you're seeing the combat of your body. Your body's falling apart. There's parts of your body that are dying. You're being pumped full of drugs, like everything around you is changing your brain chemistry is changing and it is sort of like having well not sort of it is having a ptsd after the fact yes i went months thinking that any little scrape any little cut any little bruise was cancer coming back and i was like compulsively checking lymph nodes to make sure that i was okay and any little and i would like feel a rib and be like oh my god maybe it's a tumor it's like it's your Uh, rib dude like chill out like it's you know calm down but but like, <laughs> but it's true you go through it's this like it's, you go through this ridiculous like oh my god i have a hangnail it's cancer like you, it's just like doesn't make sense there's no logic to it at all but like that's what your brain does because it's yeah. this traumatic like ptsd of like every little thing can trigger you back into the hospital like smelling certain hand sanitizers is like right back in that room oh. you know like going through covid with wearing masks and gloves and oh. everything I had to do that in quarantine. Everyone around me had to do that while I was in quarantine yes. during my stem cell transplant. That brought right. me back to that. Right. And so it it really is just like this crazy 
you know, yes, you get to live and that's great. And that's the yay. Let's celebrate with champagne and cake, which I did. Um, right. But then, but then there's the part after that. It's very much like the fairy tale happily ever after. Well, what happened after that? You right. know, like there's a really great Sarah Bareilles song called fairy tale where she kind of like details what happens to all of them after the happily ever after situation. Yes. Yes. And yes. Uh, it's very, it's very much that like I beat cancer happily ever after. And then I had an existential crisis and everything came crashing down. I had to figure out what the rest of my life was going to look like. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and nobody is in tune to that, you know? So, wow. I, I'm so glad you said that and told us that. I'm so glad that you let us know that. And then this is, this will help all of us be better friends to that kind of also another reason why i wrote the book you know not to give the two that kind of ghosted me during that period of time too much too much you know brain space or airtime but like that was one of the reasons because like if you're not equipped to deal with this kind of thing here's the playbook on what happens in the worst case scenario so if you can read this and laugh and get through it and understand it if something like this happens to someone in your life that's not that severe and crazy you'll be great right Yes, yes, yes. Edward, I'm so full from this interview, and I knew it was going to be an in-depth interview. I knew what I wanted to ask and to get out of this interview and for the audience to get out of this interview. And and I, I, I think we achieved that. And I just thank you for chronicling your journey and, and you did let us in on a lot of insights that people don't even realize or know about, you know. Um, and I just say thank you. Just thank you for writing this book. Well, thank you. I was I was happy to do it. It was it was a labor, maybe not of love, but it was a labor. <laughs> um, and I am I am very proud of it. And there's a lot of really cool things coming up centered around it that I'm I'm excited about. And so, oh yes, yes, you were telling me, but we can't say anything. We can't say anything just yet. Okay. Well, <laughs> Although I wait, I don't remember how long ago we spoke, but the insider article did come out, so that is out. Oh, okay. So, uh, so that okay, we so can talk about. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about it then. Let's okay. tell the, the insider article you it said. Okay, so tell us about that. Yeah, so the insider article is um, my publicist submitted a pitch of this story about my like friend and ex-boyfriend leaving me during this period of time and how that kind of happened. Mm -hmm. um, and the just the story of that. And it was basically just the tie-in to how when I was going into this situation, I had, like I said, so much career momentum that was, that felt so good. And I felt like, oh my God, everything is working. Things are happening the way that I want them to. And I have such a bright future. And then this happened. Yeah. And like I said, like your whole life gets derailed and you have this existential like crisis of like, who am I? Right, right. And so it has taken me, like, I hate to say it, but until really last year and this year to be like, uh -huh to get back to that place where it's like, oh my God, it's working. It's actually working. And like, I feel like I have that momentum again. Yes. And, you know, unfortunately that is 10 plus years in, in the making, but um, you know, when I said that cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me, like this is part of it because with, without it, I would have never written this book. I would have never been able to talk to like you or other lovely people that I've also spoken to yeah. and the other opportunities that came have come and are coming along the way for this book would never have happened yeah and so i don't know what my life would look like had cancer not 
popped its head in. It's strange, you know? isn't it? It's, it's so strange. weird. Like, would yeah. I even like the person I am? Where would I be? What would be happening? You know, like so many things happened because of cancer for the good, for the betterment yes. of me. Yes. And it's yes. such a weird feeling. And so that's kind of the article overarches into that kind of theme where it's like, all of this crazy stuff happened and like these people yes. were not equipped to support me. And even though I yes. had support elsewhere, it really, that, yes. that hurt because they felt the closest aside of my parents. And so, you know, it's then navigating out of that and getting to a place where you can be like, okay, wait a minute. Like what I'm doing now is, is sticking. It's working. Like there's something right. happening. And so like, that's, that was kind of like the general thing of that article. And I'm, I'm super proud of it. It feels really good to have my name up there right under the insider heading. And uh, yes, more of that, please. <laughs> yes, I know that's right. You know, and I, I was thinking about what you did, you were just saying, and you you said it a little bit. There's a Bible verse, and I know a lot of people, um, you know, might not know this, but all things work together for the good. And then when I when I have been in church, my younger self <laughs> heard that verse. I'm like, you mean to tell me? Uh, I've got to have a whole bunch of bad stuff happen plus some good stuff. I mean, you know, you don't really realize that verse until you kind of live it. And my situations have not been as deep as your medical diagnosis, but there's been things in my life that was like, oh gosh, I had to go through this and this, which was like stepping on hot coals in order to get to this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well and it, it's kind what? of like it, it really is kind of like that adage of seeing the forest for the trees and like when you're <laughs> when you're in it all you see are these big trees that are like oh god like eh. but when you give yourself a second to pull yourself away from it and see how all of those big trees good or bad have made this big beautiful forest right then it's not so bad and and i'm not so much a, a religious church going kind of gal right. but like i right. will i will point to what i know best which is yes. stephen sondheim and musical theater yes. and if you know into the woods which is one of my favorites okay. there's a line in a song in act two called moments in the woods and it says okay. if life were made of moments even now and then a bad one if life were made of moments then we'd never know we had one Exactly. Oh, and right. so it, it is like the good and the bad and the space between and like, yeah. like mundane things you do every day, like brushing your teeth and making coffee and going for a walk or just kind of like the things in between. So if every single thing was a moment, then that would just become normalized and there would be no moments. Right. And so the idea of having these like moments of whether whether they be good or bad. Right. really kind of gives you that dynamic of life where like, yes, you do have to go through the bad things to have the good things. And yeah. in the end, in the end, you have this array of moments that make up life. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, so beautiful. What a beautiful takeaway. And we will end right here with that beautiful word. Edward, thank you so much for joining the Bookaholic podcast. If thank nobody you for having got me, out of it, it was me. <laughs> Well, I'm glad if it's just you that it was just you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Edward, we'll have all of your information in the podcast show notes and in the video description box below the video on YouTube. Edward, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me.